Ball is here, and it's a temperature check on the state of the industry. Hi, everybody. Snow Show. I am Matt Brown, joined as always by Jeff Borman. As usual, I'm going to pepper you with questions of which I have no idea what the answers are, and you are going to act as an oracle of light and truth. One I'd like to start with that's very broad is, uh, uh, well, first, let me back up and say that you recently did a presentation about the state of the uh, uh, state of the industry. I think one of the things that I noticed as I was kind of going through it is uh, I feel like you have a disdain maybe for the hotel industries and travel as a whole, you know, that they have this love of numbers, love of statistics. All industries do, certainly. The hotel industry particularly loves stats and they love numbers, but that there can be sort of a, I don't know if I call it a creative license, but you oftentimes feel like uh, hotel experts, quote unquote, are kind of pulling numbers out of there. But is that an accurate statement? <laughs> well, Matt. Other than you, of course. Of Your numbers course. are beyond beyond compare. So let's go with this, Matt. Uh, whoever said numbers don't lie, that was the biggest lie of them all, right? You can make anything say what you want to or find a figure that will support your narrative. If that's your aim, if that's the kind of presenter you are, uh, then you can do that. And there's really no obstacle to it. You can also interpret things in a lot of different ways. And this is going to be a really boring podcast if I qualify everything. Yeah, I think a lot of numbers come out of our asses. And and in part of it, I think that got exaggerated during COVID, significantly exaggerated because the industry got, it didn't just get a black eye. It was down for the count. It was at a, the industry barely made it up from a nine count. Like the, the boxing match that happened, we got the ever loving hell kicked out of us. And so because of that, I think there was a far greater degree of willingness for people to accept good news. You know, green shoots. Ah, ah, it's all bad, but not that one right there. Not that one. I see. I see a good number. I see a good one. And and everybody could just kind of rally around. You know, it's not horrible. It's not that the world's not collapsing. And, And as we're years and years away from just searching for good things to say, I think the narrative in the industry uh, is less truthful, frankly. It's not back. And that upsets me deeply when I hear articles, uh, you hear people, executives speak and uh, articles titled, the industry has fully recovered, is absolutely, categorically, totally false. What else did you talk about here? Recently, you stated that hotel brands are taking over the world. What does that mean? You know, The amount of supply has not changed considerably. I mean, you could look in certain markets, right? Nashville has gone through a boom. New York City, huge supply boom in the last 10 years. Uh, The comment uh, that I was making with you offline was more global. And so while total supply globally is only increasing at a very reasonable amount, uh, over a 10 year period, the percent of that supply that's represented by the biggest brands, your, your Marriott, Hilton, IHG, Choice, right? I really should have looked this up. You should plan. You should ask me these questions in advance so I can get real numbers. But let's say that the brands represented 15% of that global supply 10 years ago. They're now at like 20, 25%. Again, don't quote those numbers, but that's the kind of growth they're taking over more and more. And it comes through two things. We have three, I guess. The first is, 
conversions. A lot of independent hotels, massive, more than ever, have found the value of joining a brand during the COVID period to be too attractive to resist. So uh, for example, you're an independent hotel in New York City. Your business levels in the city meant that you could comfortably run 85% occupancy all year, even with a no-name brand, right? Independent, not recognized, no big chain affiliation, no loyalty program. You could run 85% occupancy because New York City itself was so busy and compressed. New York City is no longer that busy and compressed. And so those bookings are diluted as total occupancy drops. Now as an independent, without having the benefit of a loyalty program and a big, major, huge brand behind you, you're running 60% off. There's not that spillover effect that fills up the independence. That along with you know better purchasing power, right? Uh, Arnie Sorensen famously said that an independent hotel uh, paid a dollar for the toilet paper yesterday. They joined the autograph collection and now it costs 70 cents just because of the purchasing power of Marriott, right? So you've got all these benefits that big chains and the scale they offer bring to independence. And so there's been a flood of hotels that have gone from independent into uh, brand umbrellas, mainly under soft brands like autographs and curios and stuff like that. The second part is construction pipelines. And this is a longer trend, but new developers they want to develop with a brand. It's a less risky proposition. I'm going to build a 200-room hotel. It's going to follow some specs. It's basically like a hotel in a box. You know, If you want a home too, because I think that's the brand that's got the most hotels in the pipeline in the US under construction, here's the blueprint. Go build it. And here's your return. And damn, if that thing isn't really accurate, right? Just follow the plan, man. So because of that, there's a huge swell of the pipeline that is now just purely, totally dominated by the biggest brand chains. Uh, I think the third part of that, Matt, is globally, the brands have greatly increased their presence. Uh, and I think you see this through acquisitions that these big companies have made, uh, but also the development as, let's take it over the last 15 years uh, in China, let's say, 20 last 20 years in China, uh, there were probably... 25 Marriott hotels 20 years ago in China, and today there's 300. Again, I don't know those numbers to be totally accurate, but the scale illustrates the reality that's out there. You know, Hilton, let's call it at the turn of the century, may have had a presence in 70 countries. Now it's 110. So globalization has also made this happen where the brands have gone out of their local parochial backyards uh, and spread to every single corner. And you know, if you're a developer of a hotel in Argentina, 20 years ago, you probably didn't even think much about a Hilton or a Marriott. There were only two or three in the country. It wasn't top of mind. Uh, today, if you're a developer in any country like Argentina and you name your country, you have to be at least considering a major brand for the project. So brands are taking over the world. I don't know if that's a good, bad statement, but it's absolutely true. I saw something recently that compared office attendance to hotel occupancy. And I think on the surface, this makes a lot of sense, but it's something I've never really thought about before, and that there is a direct correlation between the two. The depression in office occupancy, particularly in markets like New York, has a real effect on surrounding hotels. Is that something that's borne out in your research? completely borne out. I just wouldn't say it's my research, but there's plenty of it. There's a company called Castle with a K that measures office space occupancy. 
Uh, there are a couple others, but they tend to be the one that I see the most publications from. Uh, and two people that we've had on this show, uh, Ryan Melliker refers to them in every one of his quarterly updates. And more recently, we had Jan Freitag from STR or CoStar uh, join us. I love the way Jan said it. If you give me the office occupancy, I can predict your business travel volume. And so when STR did a really cool graph at their conference in early August, or they released it in early August, and it takes the top 25 markets in the U.S. Uh, and plots them based on office traffic on the y-axis and uh, hotel occupancy on the x-axis. And what you get is a very, very clear line, uh, a plotted graph of markets. So the market that has higher hotel occupancy and higher office leasing change are the same market, Miami, right? And these are compared to 2019. The market that has the biggest drop in office leasing change, San Francisco, almost 50% down. And it's hotel occupancy down 30 points. It is the lowest in both of those. And if you look along that, that path, it falls with maybe two exceptions, uh, two outliers, right? So 23 of 25 top markets exactly follow that correlation. The two outliers are Phoenix in part and mostly driven because they had the Super Bowl this year. And Nashville, uh, where there is still, despite massive supply growth in the last 10 years, it still continues to outgrow, be one of the best growth markets in the U.S., period. That's because every bachelorette party in the world goes to Nashville. You're going to Nashville, Savannah, Charleston, New Orleans, even if you don't live in the South. What I just learned, actually, is that Phoenix and Scottsdale specifically is the West's bachelorette capital. So you're right. The two outliers are Phoenix and Nashville, the bachelorette party capitals of America. Is there an unspoken or perhaps spoken dread amongst the hotel industry that business travel is not coming back? Uh, I'll speak for me. Yeah, it's terrible. I don't see. And this is a place I've been quite frankly, pretty pessimistic and for a long time about it, mainly because once CFOs, big company CFOs, once they got all the savings of cutting their travel budgets to zero, they were never going to let it get back to 100% again. Totally. I always feel like it's it's not the big trip to the West Coast or the East Coast where we're going to go out and it's going to be a retreat and it's going to be three full days. Great. You guys go do it, get in the room together. What it feels like it cuts away at are all those little micro trips, New York to Boston, uh, Atlanta to New York. We need to do a three-hour meeting on Monday, and then I'll fly back that night. And I think those are the ones that have gotten axed by Zoom and by any other mechanism that you'd use to, to talk online. Big meetings are still down. And I know we've shifted a little bit from business travel to group travel. They overlap. They're not the same. But the big meetings are still way down. And I think it goes kind of to what you're saying, where the trip purpose has to have ROI more than ever before. Like the fact that I'm just going to go someplace for two days of meetings is no longer good enough to go do that. Uh, why are you going? I'm going to sit in this meeting room. What are you going to learn? Eh, some some tips and tricks. You know, socialize, press flesh. It's like, eh, there's no ROI in that. Forget it. And instead of sending ten people to that conference, we're going to send five. And I think that so the you know, meeting sizes have decreased, 
which is a big part of that. And business travel, likewise, uh, you can see Monday is the day that of, you know, if you compare it each day of week to 2019, Monday is the least recovered, meaning, you know, the occupancy that it used to run across the U.S. to the occupancy Monday runs now across the U.S. Part of that is because nobody goes to the office on Monday. Even in these hybrid workplaces, people will be there most likely on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So the idea that you're going to travel, be there for meetings on Monday, well, if you go to that office to meet somebody, there's no one there. Thursday, interestingly enough, though, has also been kind of forever altered by the work from home or the work remote stuff, uh, where people are, you know, beleisure is a term we can't seem to get away from. But that Thursday used to be a real tough night to fill for hotels. It's now one of the busiest nights of the week because you do get that overlap now of business travelers who are still there on the Thursday night lingering from the Thursday work, staying into the weekend, uh, whereas before it was much more likely to take off. One one of the more interesting numbers I saw, this was at GBTA. Uh, We know that people are traveling for, you know, multi-trip purposes in a single trip, the bleasure stuff, right? Work sends me and then I stay. The most interesting one, add-on fact to that, 79% of the people who extend their trip or arrive early either way, stay at the hotel that they were booked into for the work purpose. I thought that was fascinating. People aren't moving around. So in light of all that information, what markets benefit from this in the US and what markets don't? All the chatter that gets under my skin about the industry's back. Uh, Not even close. Only six markets are up 20% to 19, which is really just enough to offset inflation right now. So of the top 25 markets in the US, 20 are not nominally recovered, nor are they in real ADR either. What are the six markets? Uh, Vegas, San Diego, Orlando, Phoenix, uh, which you might even be able to make a case that's an outlier because of Super Bowl, but it's in there. Tampa and Orange County. Todd Sunbelt, nothing north, <laughs> nothing in the north. <laughs> One day, Twin Cities will come for you. As we're moving closer to 2024, what should hotel people be thinking about? I'm not particularly bullish on 24 or 5. I think the headwinds facing the industry are pretty severe in terms of business travel is not going to recover in that time frame to 19, if ever. Large conventions uh, are not going to be as good for the foreseeable future. Right? Just If you count the number of citywide conventions going on in America, not up to what it used to be. If you count the size of those, it's down. Uh, so the major drivers, those two major segments are still going to be a headwind for the industry. The economics don't favor leisure travel the way it did during COVID, right? There were a lot of handouts during COVID. A lot of people got free money. And a lot of people spent that free money on leisure, luxury travel. Uh, I think that's normalizing. Not that I think so. It is normalizing. Uh, So you don't have that tailwind, right? You talk about headwinds and tailwinds and headwinds and tailwinds. And and in the end, I think we next 18 to 24 months, it's going to be a slow slug, uh, because we've realized as an industry a lot of the recovery momentum, uh, but we still face a real tough time. GDP, I love to quote, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes I've come across. Uh, Sean Dubravic, uh, we are one month away from a recession. 
for 18 months, we've been one month away from a recession. Next month, we will be one month away from a recession. And I think there's some fatigue around that where uh, people are just hitting a malaise of, it's not getting any better. And if you look at consumer sentiment, uh, it's as bad as it was during the worst days of COVID, which is kind of amazing, right? How can that be? But you ask people, how are you feeling? They're feeling like they did in the early COVID days. That concerns me. There are there are some good things going on out there, which is normalization and stabilization means, you know, as an industry, things will be more predictable in 24 than they were in 23. Even if it's not that much better, they'll be predictable. And that in itself has advantages. You can do better business planning. You can plan your cost allocation, your capital allocations. You can do pricing better, right? Everything from a, you know, a more accurate forecast and understanding of what's about to happen, and you run your business more effectively. So I think we've got that in our favor. We also wanted to talk this week about a pretty sensitive topic, which we've been discussing a lot uh, over the last couple of days, and we want to share our thoughts and hopefully share those thoughts with some empathy and understanding, but then also some some practicality, frankly. And namely, when can you visit a place that's recently had a disaster? Yeah. It's tricky because there are safety concerns for the traveler. There are logistical concerns for the place, um, i.e. Are, are more people helping the logistical flow of emergency management? Uh, and perhaps the most complicated element, which is a queasiness in spending leisure time in a place that has recently experienced pain. We are recording this the second week of September, so the anniversary of 9-11 is, is of course, fresh in our minds. And this is just days after uh, both the earthquake in Morocco and the floods in Libya. And it's very top of mind because in 10 days, Jeff and his wife, Heather, were scheduled to go to Morocco. Jeff, what's kind of been going through your mind over the last couple of days as the story has been spooling out? Yeah, I'm I'm extremely disappointed not to go on the trip. We I think we're 99% decided or decided for us that it's just not going to happen. We were scheduled to go to the High Atlas Mountains, which is the epicenter of where the earthquake took place. Roads are not passable. Like you said, you know, emergency crews and resources are being directed to things other than guiding around American tourists who want to go on a hike, right? I mean, it's to some degree, we're being advised. It's just not practical to go do that. And so we're going to listen to that advice. But it pains me to listen to that advice because I feel very passionately about uh, going to a place, spending your tourist dollars. It uh, it bothers me when a, a disaster of any kind comes and goes, uh, but the hangover, because people associate the place with that natural disaster, can last months and even up to a year years. Uh, it's exactly when you should go, right? If you care about that place, if you care about the people and the value uh, that tourism dollars bring to these local economies, the restaurateurs, the hoteliers, the small shop, the housekeeper who doesn't have work because you didn't go, right? Uh, in a time of disaster, that's when you absolutely go. So it really pains me to say that I, I don't think we're going but we're going to follow the advice that we're being given uh, by the people in Morocco who say it's not the right time to be there. We're confronting this issue more and more and more as the world becomes more mobile. We have to navigate 
a sense of timing in ways that uh, maybe previous generations didn't have to to navigate. And and I, you know, there's no easy answer to this. I think leading with empathy, listening to not just the government, but maybe reading and and hearing as many stories from the people who actually live there, not just the business owners, even though I think those are, are valid voices to listen to as well, but to to listen to the population and take uh, take your own temperature check of what those situations are uh, before you commit to going there or as is often the case is following through on a commitment, you know, for, for trips like Morocco, you know, Amanda and I, we, uh, we honeymoon there, you know, five years ago and it's a beautiful place. It needs to be visited by everyone. It's incredibly friendly people, beautiful sites. And I think, uh, I think we, we just want to support that place as much as we can and travel can provide a legitimate way to do that. All right, let's go with this in the mystery question as as a way to get people thinking about going to Morocco at some point uh, when they feel comfortable. What was the place that you were looking most forward to visiting? The High Atlas Mountains, uh, precisely where the earthquake took place in Marrakesh, which I'm, I cannot wait to go visit. I don't expect there to be incredible natural beauty, cultural uh, enlightenment is what I would really expect in that part of the trip. Uh, but being you know, perched up in the high Atlas Mountains and uh, gazing across barren landscapes like I've never seen before, that was going to be special. You know, I mean, it's a tough question because I really didn't have a single part of it. Uh, there's a town called Esuara. Uh, it's a small beachside uh, town. And I thought uh, that could have ended up like in the back of my mind, that was going to be the best. I just didn't know why. Uh, I, I was given guidance that uh, you can really explore on your own. Uh, it's small and safe and it's comfortable enough that you can be really truly into the fabric of Moroccan culture and people uh, without having to be handheld or looking over your shoulder at all. Mm-hmm. 